If you're from Boston, then you might have been born on the land of the Massachusetts tribe. If you're from Dallas, Texas, then you might be from the land of the Anadarko people. And if you're from the Bay Area, then you might be from the land of the Ohlone people. My point is, we in the U.S. are all living on Native American lands. And throughout this land, we have all types of restaurants representing cuisines from all over the world. And I bet a lot of you have been to a bunch of those restaurants in different parts of this country. But I'd also be willing to bet very few of you have ever been to a Native American restaurant. I know I personally haven't. And it occurred to me, that's a little strange. Well, in Minneapolis, there's a chef named Sean Sherman, a.k.a. The Sous Chef, that's on a mission to change that. And you can get a taste of that change at his restaurant, Owam, where Sean serves up his decolonized plates. Decolonized meaning they don't use any of the ingredients that Europeans introduced to North America. That excludes a whole lot of things, things that many of us consider ultra-American. Foods like dairy, wheat, sugar, and pork. My name is Baudelaire, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we head to Awami, where Sean Sherman is on a mission to reclaim heritage and culture through cuisine. More after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. As the Mississippi River runs through the heart of Minneapolis, it passes through St. Anthony Falls, an almost 50-foot waterfall that's been damaged over time. And this damage came from the mills and tunnels that were built in the late 1800s. But way before the colonial settlement by Europeans, Dakota people lived along this waterfall. In the Dakota language, which is the original peoples that lived here, the waterfall was named Awamni Yamni, which meant place of the falling, swirling water. This is Sean Sherman, the owner of Awamni, which is right by that waterfall. So the restaurant basically sits at the heart of the Mississippi for the Dakota people. And it's just a really important and sacred space, you know, and it was really cool to be able to put Awamni right back there and just basically reclaim the name of what is downtown Minneapolis. Awamni is a very modern restaurant stylistically. There's shiny hardwood floors and windows all around giving you a view of downtown Minneapolis and the Mississippi River. And though the place has a modern look, the menu is all about going back in time, to a time before the European invasion of North America. They removed from their plates all ingredients that those Europeans brought over. 
So we took away dairy, wheat flour, cane sugar, beef, pork, chicken, and just focused on a lot of native heirloom varietals of, of agriculture, like corns and beans and squash and sunflower seeds and chilies, focusing on a lot of wild foods, a lot of wild plants that you don't typically see. On the Awamni menu, you'll see meals like braised elk, bison tacos, and venison tartare. And Sean invites the questions about the dishes. There's just a lot of history to share, you know, with some of these things that we're using. So it just opens up a lot of doors for conversation because food is something safe for people to be curious about. You know, because they might have something with wild rice and choke cherries and cedar and, you know, Labrador and all these herbs and things like that. So let's start asking questions. And our servers are really well educated to answer a lot of these questions so they can just talk you through, like, the importance of wild rice and some of the native names and some of the uses and some of the histories and here and there, depending on what it is. But along with paying homage to the past, part of Awamni's mission is helping the present. Through Awamni, Sean is able to support almost 50 indigenous food producers all over Minnesota and beyond through purchasing ingredients and supplies from them for the restaurant. Awamni's only been open for a couple years, but they've gotten some pretty great press. The restaurant has been written about in The New Yorker, The Guardian, and the BBC. And that's apart from write-ups about Sean himself in Forbes, National Geographic, and the New York Times. With all this press, Sean has been positioned as a leader in the Native American cuisine scene. But Sean's journey wasn't always rooted in cooking Native foods or even understanding the importance of these recipes. Sean was born a member of the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And in our conversation, Sean told me that he felt the shift away from their traditional recipes began with his grandparents' generation. They were first generation to go through boarding schools, to cut their hair, to learn English, to learn Christianity, um, and just to become assimilated, basically, you know, and to lose a lot of what it meant to be Lakota. And this story is normal when it comes to what happened to indigenous peoples all over the place. We all went through this assimilation by the U.S. government, and it really stripped us of a lot of our culture, and especially food. Sean says growing up, he and his peers hunted a lot and would eat what they hunted, from pheasants to duck, antelope, or rabbit. But a big part of his diet back then came from outside the reservation's borders. You know, and largely we just had a lot of U.S. government and commodity food program foods in our cupboards because that's what a lot of people on the reservation were utilizing. And still a lot of people on reservation systems are still utilizing the commodity food program and FDPAR program, which is just a lot of government canned foods and, you know, bags of, you know, powdered milk and, you know, big gallons of corn syrup and stuff like that. Of course, the big bricks of American government cheese, too. So that was pretty, pretty basic, pretty standard. But when Sean was 13, right before he started high school, his mom moved him and his sister off the reservation. We moved to a small town in South Dakota in the Black Hills called Spearfish. And that's basically where I started working in restaurants um, by the time I was 13 years old. Sean loved working in kitchens. He felt at home there. Everything just came natural to him. But in 1996, when it was time for college, he moved to Minneapolis to pursue an art degree. And then I found out that art school was extremely expensive and I had no funds for that. So I just continued working restaurants and just kind of started a career here in Minneapolis because I just moved my way up rather quickly in the restaurants, became a very young chef in the city and just started uh, started that career. Then in 2008, Sean was almost 40 when he had a realization that changed his life. And I just had this epiphany. I just real. I realized the complete absence of indigenous foods out there. I realized that I knew nothing about my own heritage culture when it came to culinary, even though I'd studied all these other cultures from all over the place. You know, because I could cook hundreds of European recipes easily. 
you know, and I could name name the ingredients in European languages, and I realized I didn't know hardly anything about I didn't know anything about Lakota foods. So Sean started diving headfirst into every resource that he could find with information on the culinary history of his people. But I kind of knew what I was looking for, so I was just slowly searching for pieces little by little and then slowly coming across pieces, you know, and um, coming across a lot of indigenous seed keepers, finding out who still held a lot of these heirloom varietals that are out there, um, and just starting to really understand the implications of the history of the United States against us as indigenous peoples um, and understanding how, you know, looking at what we lost so I can start to piece those things back together. Fast forward about a decade, and Sean was still working in restaurants that didn't have menus rooted in native recipes. But he did have two James Beard Awards under his belt. In 2018, he won the award for American cooking. And in 2019, he won their award for leadership. But Sean wanted to do something different. He wanted to start his own thing that paid homage to the past while creating a path forward. He then started working on two major projects. The first was a nonprofit called Indigenous Food Labs, where he could have an online and physical market space for indigenous food producers, a digital classroom for folks like him who just want to learn more about their indigenous culinary history, and a production kitchen. The second was Awamni. Sean had created a menu of native recipes from tribes all across North America. In the meantime, before they got the store open, Sean and his team were taking catering gigs. But by the time Sean had the locations and everything picked out and ready to go with lease signing, the world basically shut down due to the COVID pandemic. And that first two weeks of March in 2020, the whole world changed so quickly, you know, because the pandemic just rolled out, you know, Portland shuts down, San Francisco shuts down, New York shuts down. And, you know, the writing was on the wall for what was going to happen with Minneapolis. And we just saw all of our catering disappear up in smoke. Felt like we just sat tight for a little bit, like a lot of people did, and just kind of waited. And in that waiting, the world grew more and more anxious over COVID. And then in May, police officers killed George Floyd in Minneapolis. I remember seeing the news bits because we had heard that somebody had gotten killed by the police. And then, but we also had started coming out on social media that people recorded what was going on and it was messed up. You know, everybody saw it. As the city and the country dealt with the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, Sean and his team decided to spring into action and just do something. He wanted to do the best he could to make a difference locally at such a turbulent time. So with a menu of meals they could make relatively quickly, they got to work making plates for the homeless around Minneapolis. The same decolonized plates that he and his team had been developing for Awamni. So we were literally just walking around homeless encampments, handing out food to people, giving people hot food. And um, and then we started working with a different company, um, a different nonprofit here in Minneapolis that we were able to stretch out further. Um, so we were doing about 400 meals a day for a little while in that summer. And then as the pandemic winter, we started sending food directly out to tribal communities nearby us. So at the height of the winter during that pandemic year, we were sending out 10,000 meals a week out of our small kitchen. Sean started with a team of four that soon turned into 13. Using the kitchen space intended for indigenous food labs, they were turning out meals that ended up in the hands of the homeless throughout South Minneapolis and in the hands of Native people living in nine reservations across Minnesota. We weren't set up for that kind of food relief, but we just figured it out and we made it happen. We had a lot of volunteer work that helped us out and uh, we got through it, you know, and then we turned around and opened up the restaurant. After almost three years of running Awamni, Sean won another James Beard Award in 2022. This one for Best Chef. 
But though Sean has received much of the praise, he says a Womney success is much bigger than him. It just creates a place for us to have a voice where people can come and learn about indigenous issues and uh, experience like what is true North American foods, you know, not European echoes of it, but like true North American foods from where we are that really pays homage to the land, to the cultures, to the peoples that had been here for forever. And just trying to showcase like this massive amount of indigenous diversity that's out there by making recipes that kind of reflect different regions of the U.S. and Mexico and, and Alaska, because we'll get all of North America as one big hole. It doesn't matter which colonial border is there or who's speaking English, Spanish, or French, because those are all foreign languages, you know. So we're understanding like what's what was here first, and that's that's kind of how we're just like pushing our, our philosophy of decolonization out there. There are a couple Native American restaurants Sean shouted out in our conversation. He told me about a place called Takabe in Denver and Wapipas Kitchen in Oakland. If you Google Native American restaurants in the U.S., you'll see some more, but there still aren't enough but we should have Native American restaurants in every single city. Like, there's no reason to not. Like, if you're in Manhattan, you find food from everywhere in the world, you know, or Brooklyn, everywhere in the world, just not the land you're standing on, you know? And that's just insane. Awamni is open Wednesday through Sunday, 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. Reservations are required, so make sure you visit their website and plan your visit from there. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. Our production team includes Dylan Thress, Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Gabby Gladney, Johanna Mayer. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tindall. This episode was sound designed and mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. And my name is Baudelaire. The legend of Cayman Jack is just around the corner. With blue agave nectar, real lime juice, and cane sugar. Discover legendary tastes with America's number one margarita. Premium flavored malt beverage. Please drink responsibly. All registered trademarks used under license by American Vintage Beverage Company, Chicago, Illinois. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Dakota Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Dakota Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Dakota Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one.